for the ancient Greeks who came up with the idea of democracy, elections were in, inherently undemocratic. The etymology of the word democracy is that the Greek words demos, which is citizens or the populace of a country, and kratos, which is power. So democracy literally means power to the people. And through elections, we're basically outsourcing our agency and our power to elected representatives who actually don't represent the majority of us. So it doesn't work as, from first principles, it doesn't work as a democratic system at all. My guest this week is Phil Adams. Phil is an Edinburgh-based independent brand strategist and consultant, a writer and documentary filmmaker. I briefly crossed paths with Phil back in the mid-90s when we both worked at legendary Edinburgh ad agency, the Leith Agency. But you would be mistaken if you were to think that Phil is just your average ad guy. He's much more. It's a fusion of his engineering first principles, problem-solving ability with a high level of emotional intelligence and an intuitive ability to simplify the complex that makes him a masterful storyteller. Now, this manifests in his day job as he helps businesses get their story straight to ensure their brand does justice to their vision and their culture. But outside of his day job, it's through his documentary filmmaking that Phil's delivering powerful stories of radical democracy in action to inspire belief that we can all, as citizens, deliver excellent outcomes to even the most complex of political issues. Now, um, we do cover a lot in this episode. It's quite a long one. Uh, From his insight into strategy creative ideas, the types of people we should hire, how to cultivate opportunities, to his perspective on AI and his views on democracy and how we reimagine capitalism, as well as the Shakespearean power of Freddie Mercury's lyrics. It's well worth a listen. This is definitely one of my favourite interviews and I doubt anyone listening to this episode will not walk away feeling uplifted and with a broader perspective on the world. Before we get started, if you are enjoying the show, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is new. Follow us on your favourite podcast player and please share with anyone you know as it helps us grow the show. Now, over to Phil. Phil, welcome to the Impossible Network. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Great to be speaking to you. So, um, and you are where exactly? I am in a place called Portobello, which calls itself, yes, Edinburgh. It calls itself Edinburgh's Seaside. So yeah, about five, six minutes walk down the road, there's a, a very nice sandy beach Make you walk the dogs. People go wild swimming, and some nice. It doesn't. It, doesn't it feels like a village. It feels like a village in in a, in a capital city. So it's a lovely place. Yeah, a, a good fish and chip shop. Several. Okay, well, let's jump in. Before we get into what you're doing now and what you're working to achieve, can we start with who you are as a human being? Yeah, nothing like breaking someone in. with a small small ice-breaking question. I I do have to congratulate you, actually, and thank you for sending the questions through in advance um, because they do require a lot of thought. I I, I wouldn't like to be answering these from the hip. So who am I? I did think about this long and hard, and one of the things I kept coming back to is something that my, my grandfather said to me when I must have been about 11, 12, something like that, and he said, words to the effect of the thing about Phil is that he always has a twinkle in his eye. And I think that's probably true. I think it's something to aspire to as well. And I think maybe what he was hinting at there was that I I always had a sort of sense of mischief. 
and an eye for adventure. And I mean, that was a small A, just small adventures at that mm-hmm. age, obviously. But yeah, I, I, I think mischief and adventure, they're not bad values to have. So yeah, that, let's, that's, let's start with that. I'm quite happy lovely. with that. Mischief mm-hmm. and, ad- mischief and adventure. Never heard anyone actually sort of talk about that. It's funny. It's really lovely questions. Took me back. You know, an example of that in, in early life, not one I'm particularly proud of, but, you know, we used to sort of hang out in with a, with a sort of gang, you know, not, not a knife carrying gang, but just like a gang of kids from the local street. And we'd just go off at weekends sort of on our bikes, miles and miles away playing. And there was, there's one weekend, there was a new housing estate being built down the road. And it was raining. So we took shelter in one of these sort of half built garages or garages, you would say over there. And anyway, when the builders turned up on Monday morning into that garage, they would have, and opened the door, they would have found a three foot brick wall across the garage, which wasn't meant to be there. So <laughs> we'd obviously, we, we'd mix cement and, and taught ourselves bricklaying. So I guess from their point of view, it was a, it was an act of vandalism. But it wasn't that sort of wanton, destructive kind of vandalism. It was sort it's of creative vandalism. Creative. Yeah, I like it. It was constructive <laughs> vandalism. So it was kind of a mixture of mischief and creativity. So maybe that was a portent of, of things to come. I don't know. Wow. And where was this growing up? I grew up in the northwest of England on the outskirts of a town called Wigan, which is ah, northern Seoul. Yeah, exactly. Kind of halfway between Liverpool and Manchester. Roughly, mm-hmm. yeah. Not the standard thing you'd expect teenagers to be doing is a creative vandalism. Normally, it would be brick, brick wall torn down or spray painted. What on earth? It's exactly. What yeah, earth yeah. led you to suddenly go? Let's build a brick wall <laughs> and learn to create cement. I mean, that's that's just it's quite unusual. I, I really don't know the thought process. <laughs> that, that I, I would that. I would love to have heard the the, the Friday night recounting of that story in a pub in Wigan of the builders. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, they're probably used to petty theft and things being broken or stolen, but exactly. But not things being built. I have no well, idea. I have no idea. I mean, it's the, it's what opportunity met motivation in some way. I don't know. And when you say the twinkle and this mischief and adventure, was that something that was nurtured by your parents? Or do you think it was just something innate? I don't know. I think, again, pairing for some of the questions you sent mm. through, and, and one of them was, you know, who or what made yes, you. Yes, well, it's the next question. You, yeah. And my parents were, were significant influence. I don't, I'm not sure about the twinkle in the eye thing, though. I don't, I have no idea where that came from. I probably would have been unaware of it to this day had my grandfather not pointed it out. But, I think from my parents, I got the idea that you don't get anything unless you work for it, which I guess mm. is a bit of a cliche, but it's true nonetheless. I think the main thing then that I got from my parents was they encouraged and allowed us to be interested in lots of different things. So I, I remember as a kid being interested in all sorts of stuff, you know, be it you know, science, nature, how things work. And my mum in particular encouraged us and taught us to love reading. She, you know, she would, she, she would always say, you can't be bored if you've got a book. And that stayed with me. 
So yeah, but the, the twinkle in the eye thing, I don't know. I really don't know. And did this uh, mischief and adventure press itself in other ways as you were growing up at school? Mm-hmm. I think so. I, I my mum sometimes will will sort of talk about the the reports that we get back from school, and I think I could be a pain in the ass sometimes because, <laughs> you know, particularly to the age of sixteen, I was in the top classes. I was reasonably bright. I didn't have to work too hard to do well, which meant that I could muck around in class. So a lot of the reports that would come home would be about, yeah, he does really, really well, but he's quite disruptive. Again, looking back, not something to be proud of, but yeah, it, I was, I was always on top of the work at school and therefore, you know, you can, that buys you time to mm-hmm. muck about and have fun. Mm-hmm. Where was your imagination taking you at that time? Probably not very far. I, I was thinking about this. I, I think for the longest time growing up, I, for someone who ended up in creative industry and allegedly a creative person, I don't think I had much of an imagination when I was younger. It was quite linear, you know, do, do well in, you know, get some qualifications, go to university, get a good job, get promoted, earn more money, blah, blah, blah. And that's probably as far as it went. You didn't uh, have any idea bit. at that time what you sort of thought. I mean, I, I remember being sort of a young teenager and going, I'm going to be a fighter pilot. <laughs> no, no, not, not a train driver or a fighter pilot. No, no. The fact that I'm having to think about it, you know, I didn't, I didn't have that kind of dream. No. What I would say is that when I was 16, there was this serendipitous event. One of the teachers at, at my high school, in Wigan announced in assembly one day that in one of the teachers magazines that they got there, there was quite a famous private school in Scotland was offering scholarships to people of my age from state schools. And then I went home that evening and just having dinner with my parents. And I happened to just mention that this had been talked about in assembly. And both of them said, right, you're doing it. You are going for that scholarship. Which, which school? A school called Gordonston. Oh yeah, of course, where Charles went. Yeah, the royal family went there. Well, the princes went there. Yeah, oh. didn't, they didn't enjoy it, but I was basically given no choice. I, I was going to apply for this scholarship and it, I ended up getting one. So from having been at a, at a, at a state school in Wigan to the age of 16, from the ages of 16 to 18, I was away at boarding school a very mm-hmm. posh boarding school in the north of Scotland. So that's when my horizons began to get broader because you're basically in this melting pot with kids from all over the world and, and different backgrounds and different lived experiences. And for me, that felt like the blinkers were coming off. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, you know, I was, on, I was on this sort of train track of qualifications, good university, good job, et cetera, et cetera. And then suddenly, during the age of 16, I realized, oh, there's, there's a whole world of different possibilities out there. And although I did end up going to university to study engineering, I think the seeds were sown in those two years for me thinking a bit more laterally about the way that life could go. What was it that made you blinkers come off? Was it the teachers or was there any sort of mentor or was it the other, the other students? No, not the teachers. No, I would say that the teachers I'd had at the state school in Wigan were, 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 were better teachers by and large, not, not all of them, but better by and large than the, than the teaching I got in the classroom at Gordonston. 
No, the thing about Gordonston was, A, I was just meeting people from backgrounds that I would never have encountered that age otherwise. And you are living with them full time as a, as a boarder. So, you know, if you've had a bad day at school, at state school, you, you leave it all behind at half past three and go home to your parents and you don't have to face those difficulties until the following morning. Boarding school is no escape. It's full on all the time. So a lot of my closest friends come from that two year period because trust is tested in that environment in a way that it might not be otherwise. But also <clears throat> just the ethos of the school, its motto is it had a French motto, which was plus et en vue. In other words, mm -hmm. that there's more in you than you know or that you think. And the whole ethos of the school was designed to help you discover your potential and your talent. So as well as the academics, there, there was a lot of sport, but also the Tuesday afternoon was, was devoted not to academic, but to thing called projects. So that could be music. It could be art. It could be computing a whole bunch of things. Wednesday afternoons, everyone was in a service. So I was in a mountain rescue team, a school mountain rescue team. So Wednesday afternoon was spent training for mountain rescue. And then a lot of weekends we were away in the Scottish Highlands doing mountain rescue training. You had a sort of major sport Monday and Thursday afternoons and a minor sport Friday afternoon. So basically the whole curriculum was designed to expose you to humanities, science, arts, service mm -hmm. exercise. So the idea was that if you were talented, naturally talented at something, it would allow you to discover that, which is a huge privilege, huge privilege. I wish all education was more like that for, for everybody. Um, it's interesting. You say there's more in you than the more in you than you think was the motto. And it, the fact that you say it, it's, it's expanded your imagination or your mind as to the possibilities in life. Do you think your values changed? Well, obviously your worldview expanded, but what values do you think that have stuck with you that were, that were molded in those two years? Again, I would come back to adventure. You know, if a value is something on which you place value, then adventure is mm -hmm. definitely one of mine. You know, person in both personal and professional life. And Gordonston, um, I didn't create that. I think I had that already, but it, it provided outlets for it, uh -huh. for sure. And I think maybe another one, I don't know what the right word for it is, but something along the lines of opportunism and putting yourself in opportunity's way. And when opportunity comes along, take it, even if you can't really see where it might take you. I, I talk to my daughters about this a lot that, you know, about just doing things and that life is like, is like, it's like, you know, when people set up dominoes in, in a row and then they push them so that they all knock each other down, that you've got to just keep putting the dominoes in front of you because you don't, you don't know how they'll fall or what other dominoes they're going to knock into, but that will happen. Mm -hmm. So just do things that you find interesting without really thinking about where it may take you because the more things you do, the more likely that they will take you somewhere interesting, useful. So yeah, adventure and opportunism. It's very interesting when you talk about that because, I mean, I know that you know a previous guest, Don Smith, 
we all worked together and how Don talked about his principle of or believing in emergence as a, a way of guiding star. And in the same way that I believe that serendipity is something you can engineer by the actions you take and just believing in just, as you say, just doing it. The way you describe the dominoes feels like the same thing is be prepared to just do something and trust in the process and follow that road less traveled, maybe. That it is interesting that it, it all, it's all consistent with, as you talk about being, having that adventurous spirit and being prepared. And I suppose when you talk about adventure, it also makes, it has elements of, I suppose, courage as well. Because if you are to have an adventurous spirit, and have the value, a value grounded in adventure. You have to have courage to take the actions, to follow your imagination, to take the steps necessary, whether it be physically in life or mentally when you're solving a problem. Do you think that's fair? Um, it doesn't feel courageous to me. No? I don't, I don't, I wouldn't describe myself as a, courageous person i think maybe it's more like an act of faith uh-huh. because you know you can't predict what the outcome or the consequences of a given action might be or a given course of action might be you do have to trust that the more little adventures that you take the more things that you do there might not be an explicit linear connection between what, what you do or what those adventures are and any, any particular goal that you have. You just have to trust that if you keep doing interesting things, then interesting things will happen even if you don't know what they're going to be. So that doesn't feel courageous to me. It, it's a strategy for life. It's one that's based on faith that good things will happen if you do interesting things. Yeah, that you, feels closer to it to me. When you sort of reflect back on those years as you were, you were growing to be the human that you are, you're Essentially, you're, because of your, the work you do, you are a creative storyteller. You're a problem solver. Do you have um, any early memories of a realization that that is something that defined you or made you different to other kids at school? The, again, I think the fact that I'm having to think about that uh, yeah. suggests... Well, let me ask you this. I mean, the, the other thing I'm always keen to explore is just conformity and the rebel in us and having that having that sort of sense of being prepared to just take an action to trust in the process to believe that doing interesting things will lead to something more interesting can often involve presumably at school particularly going against traditions the rules i mean it's natural in a lot of children to to confront the the system. Were you very much a conformist or did you ever sort of rebel? Um, both. I mean, I conformed in that I worked hard because I wanted to get good grades. But you know, I guess, yeah, rebelling, I already talked about sort of petty, constructive <laughs> vandalism. But yeah, at Gordonston, they, 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 they had a term for it. It was called being a shade. So, you, you know, being a shady character. So, you know, I used to drink, you know, relatively heavily. There were, so I, I, a lot of my friends were the sort of shades of the school who, 
you know, we'd go drinking at the weekend, which had heavy penalties if you got caught. I could have got thrown out, which would have been a betrayal of my parents, I guess, having supported me to get the scholarship. And then just, a th- it feels a bit reckless in mm-hmm. hindsight, some of the stuff I did. So yeah, it's kind of low level rebellion. I guess I'd, I'd be surprised any child that age didn't rebel in some way. Yeah. I remember watching this brilliant documentary. I think it was Channel 4 in the early days of Channel 4 in the UK. And it was a documentary about the the children of hippie parents. So their parents had been hippies in the sort of late 60s, early 70s, had these kids who were getting to sort of 16, 17 in the, in the mid 80s. Mm. And they were all rebelling by conforming. So their parents were these sort of laid back, <laughs> typical cliched hippies, uh-huh. but their kids had smart uniforms. They would, their top button was done up. They were wearing the tie. You know, they were, they were rebelling by being, by conforming and being swats and, and doing the opposite of dropping out. That's so and funny. It, it was so funny. Yeah. It was so funny. And it was having the, the desired effect. I mean, their, their parents were feeling rebelled against. Mm-hmm. I just found it really funny that you can Every rebel generation. by conforming. Yeah. Wow. It depends what your parents are. What you, you, you know, re- by definition, by re- in rebelling, you're pushing back against something and you can only push back against what's in front of you. When you were f- finishing off at, at Gordonston and you, you were obviously you mentioned even in Wigan at school there, you were just saying, get the grades, go to university, get a good job. You still went down that route. You went to university, you got the grades, you got a good job. What was it that made you start thinking about a career in advertising? Yeah, I think I think in terms of going to university, the, the die was cast because I got the scholarship to Gordonston. And as part of that, I'd elected to take my A-levels, the, you know, the qualification that you would get between 16 and 18 at the time. I'd elected to study maths, physics, and chemistry. So mm-hmm. I was Mr. STEM. And with, with those A-levels, that was pointing towards a certain kind of degree at university. En- engineering. <laughs> engineering, yeah. So I, I, I did a four-year master's course in engineering at Imperial College in London. And I was very lucky that it was four years, even though I wasn't enjoying it that much. I mean, I, I, I always, always had this desire to know how things work, which I guess is a natural trait of an engineer. But I wasn't enjoying the course, mm-hmm. which I think would have been a problem if I'd been doing a three-year course because it was in, it was in the third year that I was really convinced that I wasn't going to be an engineer once I left. And it was one of the, you know, serendipity, big subject close to your heart. Mm. I was on the football team, soccer team, Imperial. And one of the other guys on the team who was studying chemistry, so, you know, both doing science courses, he for some reason, I don't know why, he had decided that he wasn't going to be a scientist. He was going to be an advertising creative. And we were in the changing room after a game one day. And, and, and for him to sort of, you know, pivot from chemistry to copywriting, he'd started to put together a book, you know, writing speculative ads, a portfolio. 
And I saw that and said, you know, wait, 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 what are you doing there? And so he talked to me about advertising and he had a copy of Campaign Magazine in his bag. And I thought, well, that sounds quite good. And I'd always been interested in ads. My sister mm-hmm. and I used to play this game when the commercial breaks came on. We would see who could guess the brand behind the ad most quickly. And we would do it every commercial break. And it served me really well when I was being interviewed for ad agencies because I had this sort of encyclopedic knowledge of TV commercials wow. <laughs> the previous decade, having played this game. So something about doing was, you know, putting this, it, it just sounded really cool, really, really cool advertising. So from that moment on, I decided that's what I was going to do, not necessarily being a creative, but I, I put a lot of effort into studying the advertising industry. I, you know, I took out a subscription to Campaign Magazine. I started re-engineering my CV. I got a got myself on a Procter and Gamble marketing course in in the Easter of my fourth year. Between my third and fourth year, I worked for nothing in an advertising agency in Manchester to get some experience. And then I spent the, the fourth year applying to all the top agencies in London. So that that chance encounter in the changing room after a football game was like a handbrake turn for me. I knew I didn't want to be an engineer, but I didn't know what I did want to be. And then suddenly I did, and it was all advertising after that. So, mm-hmm. did um, did you on did you and the friend was it you and yeah yeah did he go on to be a copywriter? He did, yeah, yeah, yeah. He did. He he started out at a now defunct agency called Yellowhammer in London. Oh yeah, uh-huh. he ended up being creative director at BBH for a while. He was quite jealous of me to start what, with because he was at Yellowhammer and I got a job it? at BBH. What was his name? Um, Ewan Patterson. Oh yeah, Trisha Patterson's husband. I don't know his wife. Sorry. He worked at um, BMP when I was there. Scottish. Yes. Yeah. yeah Man yeah. City fan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah I, I know exactly who you mean. Right. That's so funny. Yeah. Um, so I played football with him at uni, and he's the person who's responsible for my advertising career. Wow, that is utterly ser- serendipitous. And what about yeah. your sister? With her encyclopedic knowledge of ads, did she go? What did she go on to do? No, she she's um, a. You know, when you can tell when you meet somebody and they talk about their profession, you can tell they're really good at it. She's a really good teacher to the manner born. Uh-huh. I've never seen her in action in the classroom, but I can say with hundred percent confidence, she's an exceptionally good teacher. I mean, that was a really conscious decision you made to take a Procter & Gamble marketing course while you're still at university and to set your sights on on advertising. What was it that led you to consider not going into the creative department and to focus on, because you started out in client service account management. Mm-hmm. I, I'm guessing a number of things. I, I'd at that point in time, I wouldn't have considered myself a creative person in the way that Ewan clearly felt about himself. So I probably closed that option down really quickly. And then I will have studied the industry. I'll have read Campaign Magazine. I would have found out that there is this thing called account management. And I will have decided that as someone with an engineering degree, that was my most likely route in. It will have been entirely pragmatic and, and no doubt researching how got a job in the industry. There will, there, 
I will have found out that, that, that the big agencies had graduate recruitment schemes mm-hmm. and that those graduate rec- recruitment schemes were for people who were going to become account management people or maybe account planners. I probably didn't discriminate at the time, but there were, there were more graduate positions for account management people than anything else. So it will have been pragmatic. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you've brought a certain degree of engineering approach to it, uh, solving a problem, finding the solution, approaching it from first principles. Yeah, absolutely. I will have done. I will have mm-hmm. done. And then I know, I know absolutely. I, I, I was from that moment on, I was locked on and whatever it took, I was going to make this happen. So, so there was a, there was a high degree of focus. I, I didn't, I put all my eggs in one basket. I did not consider alternative careers. I went all in for advertising. So aside from your, let's say your strategic and creative talent, what would you say your natural or superpower is? Again, a really interesting question. Uh, and I, I must thank you for asking me to think about it because mm. I wouldn't have done otherwise necessarily. Mm. There's a, there's a couple of things here that I was thinking about. There's that I think it was, is it, what's his name? Tom Fish. He's got, he, he's, he's also known as marketoonist mm. and he does these cartoons about marketing issues. I think it was him. I remember him saying that he's, he's not the world's best cartoonist and he's not the world's best marketing expert but he is better at both of those things than most people and when you're reasonably or very good at two complementary skills and you put them together he is the world's best marketing cartoonist although he's not the world's best marketer and he's not the world's best cartoonist and I think there's there's a fair bit of me in that I'm not the best at anything, but I am pretty stroke very good at a number of complementary skills. And when you put those together, they become a superpower, if you like, but I don't mm-hmm. word, but I don't it's only it's only when you aggregate these things that they become even remotely like a superpower. So I think there's a number of things. One is I'm naturally good at service, client service. I think service is one of those things that you people either make it look ridiculously easy or they make it look ridiculous, ridiculously difficult. Mm-hmm. And I think this is why a lot of companies, service businesses recruit for attitude because I, I do think that's innate. It might have been nurtured somehow in early life, but I think you are naturally good at service or you're never going to be a natural at it. But I was always a good barman, for instance. I was a good waiter. And you see people who just make it look spectacularly difficult when it shouldn't be. Not, not to my <laughs> eyes. So I think service comes naturally to me. I found out that I think I'm good at working with creative people. Not everyone is. I, I understand what they need from strategy. I understand the kind of support that they want and, and what they respond well to and what they respond badly to. I, I think again, which is a really important trait in a service industry is that I, I'm good at, I can always find some, something to like about everybody, even if they're not obviously likable. You know, and you'll know yourself that, you know, <laughs> there are some fantastic clients and then there are some clients that are really difficult, but I always manage to find something to like about everybody because you can't fake that and clients can tell mm-hmm. a mile away. So that's quite handy. I, um, 
an underrated skill, I would say, is the ability to post-rationalize. And I think that's particularly important when you're pitching for a new client and, you know, you're working in the agency to come up with a, a strategy that answers the client's brief and then some creative work that brings that strategy, strategy to life. And what often happens is there'll be some, someone will come up with a brilliant idea and you know in your gut that this is exactly what the client needs, but it doesn't obviously come from the strategy. So a big ability, I think, is to, is to, is to be faced with an amazing original creative idea and to be able to post-rationalize that as a legitimate response to a client brief. Mm. So that when you go into a pitch, there are short straight lines between here's the client problem. Here's our insight or our strategy or how we've reframed your problem. And here's the creative work that is going to bring that to life and, and, and make it happen in an efficient, cost-effective way. So that when it's presented to the client, it looks like a series of short, straight lines from problem to solution. Mm. And by and large, that's what win pitches. I think a lot of, I think coherence is more important in a pitch than standout creativity. Standout creativity that isn't anchored in something tends not to win pitches, whereas a coherent story from problem to solution to, to creative expression of that solution, that's far more powerful. And to, and to ch- achieve that in p- pitch conditions, you need to be able to post-rationalize because it looks linear on the day and it looks logical, but the process by which you got there was anything but. I mean, BBH, they were famous for uh, for a period of saying they'd never pitch creative work. It's always strategy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you ever encounter a situation where you were having to apply that post-rationalization into a strategy cell? No, not at BBH, because uh, like you say, they never presented creative work at pitches. Mm-hmm. No, that, that was much more um, during my time at Leith Agency. I guess at BBH, you, that would happen when... You know, you're working with a client, you've been appointed and you're going to present a piece of work. You, you have to be able to rationalize that as, as a, a legitimate response to the brief. So I guess it applies in those. It's not just in pitch circumstances. You know, it's that ability to, to make a non-linear process look linear and coherent after mm-hmm. the event. Mm. I'm int- intrigued about that post rationalization because I think. Mean- been in a situation where you've sold in a strategy to a client and then you get to the pitch and then that you, as you say a creative team will come up with something completely left field and you think wow it's brilliant and it does it takes it let's say a, f- a couple of steps away from the strategy you sold in but then you have to go back and post rationalize it how do you deal with the situation if you've already taken the client brief evolved the brief and what their strategic requirement is and sold them a strategy and then you find yourself with a creative idea, do you have to sometimes unsell your strategy to sell the creative work? Yeah. And again, I think that's entirely legitimate. Mm-hmm. You know, creative people, the really good ones, they have that ability to, to sort of reframe things and make you see things in a different manner. And I think that's, 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 yeah, the, the the industry at its best is that combination of of logic and and magic. And sometimes when the magic happens, you have to revisit the logic mm. because you now know something you didn't know before. You know this this client's brand, this client's offering 
can be rendered in this amazing, surprising way, which we hadn't anticipated. And now that we've seen it, you know, you can't unsee it. And then you have to look at that strategy with fresh eyes and say, actually, unbeknownst to us, there was something better there. And we now know what it looks like. And, and the job then is to go, well, okay, what is it about this that is this surprising original idea? What is it about that that, because, you know, you, you can't get it. Well, I can't, I can't get excited about that kind of idea just because of its originality. It has mm-hmm. to be commercially relevant. And I think you can, you, you have a quite strong gut feel based on experience. You know, that's going to work. It's going to work better than anything we had anticipated coming from this brief. So why, why is it going to work? And then this is why it's this post rationalization almost sounds a bit like it's cheating, but it's not. It's entirely legitimate when you're, when you are working with logic and magic, mm-hmm. you've got to make those two things fit together. And if the magic comes after the logic, it's entirely legitimate to revisit the logic to fit that magic. I think particularly mm-hmm. if you want to do the same thing again or something similar. This isn't just going to be a one-off. This is going to be a campaign idea. You have to get to the essence of what that, that, that idea is and how it's going to be a platform for subsequent ideas. That's, that's quite an important part of the job is, and I think creatives aren't, um, they're very good at coming up with these ideas. They're not always very good at understanding what the idea is that they've actually had and expressing it in a way that turns it from a one-off execution into a campaign idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the best planning people are very good at that, actually, you know, helping creators to understand the idea that they have had. It's funny. I, 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 I have to ask you, uh, to give me an example from where you've actually sort of, uh, experienced this. But as you're talking, I, for some reason, I keep thinking about the famous Cadbury's gorilla ad. And the campaign, glass and a half full productions type of thing, but those ads they made for me were always, I always looked at those and thought, wow, that must have been an interesting presentation from a creative. And then getting the strategist to, to sell in the, the strategy to support that creative route. Yeah. I mean, that gorilla playing the drums, that is often cited as an example of, as a, of a one off. They never really managed to, you know, that was, you know, the epitome of difficult second album and they never really cracked it. So that to me is an example where they failed to do that of, of right. really understanding what it was that they had. If, if indeed they had something, what was the underlying campaign concept that would have spawned the second, third, fourth ads that were as good, if not better than the first one? And they never did that. The current Cadbury's campaign, they clearly have done that they know what the idea is and they keep turning out these really good ads but based on a different interpretation of glass and a half mm-hmm. this this ability to push rationalize it's, uh, it's it's clearly it's a talent a gift the one thing just as you were talking as well made me think when you were talking about the confluence of different characteristics that make you define your gifts your talents your superpower made me think of that Japanese model Ikagi. Ikagi, is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's almost, it's that, as you were describing. What are the, what are the values you, or what do you value most in others? Are we talking in personal life or professional here? No, I think, let's think, I think in terms of just professional. 
whether it be people you work with, the clients that you respect, what are the values that are important? I think the most important thing, and if I were still running a strategy department, it'd be the, the number one criteria for recruiting people is, is do they have an interesting take on the world? Do, do, you know, they, do they look at the same thing as you, the same aspect of society or whatever it is, and just see it through a different pair of eyes and there, and, and through doing so allow you to see the world in a way that you couldn't have done before. I, I think that is incredibly valuable and, and energizing when you're in the room with somebody who just has a different perspective in a mm. useful way. Yeah, I mean, I think I can, I can think of several people that we've hired purely mm-hmm. because in, in interview, they just, yeah, have that different way of seeing the world. And you think, yeah, if I point that in the right direction on a client brief, that's going to be really useful and interesting and creatives will love them for it. And I, I allied to that, you know, similar thing is just, is just that the ability of someone to surprise you in a pleasant, mm-hmm. you know, in a good way. So. It, it is a bit of a cliche, this thing about hiring people who are better than you. But I think it's, it was an epiphany for me when you start to put that into action, how liberating it is to have people on the team who can do similar things to you, but do them better or just do things you just can't do. Yeah. That's, that's the only way to run a team, I think. Mm-hmm. So given that you lots of say- people talk about it, but it's quite, not, not many people do it. I don't know whether because they, they, they feel threatened or insecure about it. But I think if you can get past, it's natural to feel that way, you know, but I think if you can get past that, it's insanely liberating just to have, surround yourself with really surprising people. Mm-hmm. I remember, you know, John Denham, who founded yeah. the Leith Agency. I remember he, in, a, in an unguarded moment, he once said to me that he felt that, that quite an important trait of a chairman or a chairperson, uh. you need to have a lazy gene. Because if you if you're slightly lazy, you can only succeed by hiring really good people, and I think that was his biggest talent. Actually, was he hired some amazingly good mm. people into the Leith agency, and lo and behold, he now you know he now runs a recruitment agency. So it's so funny where, you mentioned where he is an entity. It's funny you mentioned John because I remember one thing he said that always stuck with me was of the courage to ask uh, stupid questions. Mm-hmm. So you. Just made a distinction there when I asked you what you value most in others. You talked about professional. What about non-professional? I would I would say I hadn't pre-prepared an answer on this mm. one, but I would say yeah. trustworthiness. I think I'm one of these people who I've got. I have few very good deep friendships rather than a lot of relatively mm. shallow friendship. I guess. I would describe myself as an introvert. I don't know whether those two things are linked or, or maybe it's just those formative years at Gordonston, the, 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 the premium that you put on being able to trust somebody, having people that you are prepared to be open and vulnerable with and know that there, that there will be no negative impact by doing so. I think that's, that's yeah, above all else, trustworthiness. And that's also obviously very important when you're building a team, particularly when you're hiring someone that's more talented than yourself. Yeah. Trust them. I mean, in any walk of life. Yeah, for sure. But 
and yeah, it, like you say, it, it transcends personal or professional. It, it, it's vital for both, I think. What do people compliment you for? Professionally, these days, I would say the best compliment I get now, the most telling compliment I get in the work I do now is that I get people and I get cultures. So I, I tend to be dealing with CEOs and founders and some of them have been burned by previous consultants and the, not deliberately, but just it's quite important for these people that, that, that they're working with someone on the outside who actually gets them at quite a deep level and that what I do for them and the, the recommendations that I make to them on, on how they talk about themselves to the outside mm -hmm. world comes from a place of really understanding who they are and what they're about. So I think that's that, that I, I love it when a client says that because I know then, I know then that would be, yeah, it's going to work. So that, that, that's a big one for me is, is this ability to get people and get their culture from the outside. So that'd be one. I mean, I think another thing I get complimented on quite a lot is clarity and simplicity. And again, I don't know whether this comes with age to a certain degree. I think, I think certainly as I've got older and more experience, I've become less and less wary of, I think, I think, I think there's a tendency in, in, in business in general, but in, in, in advertising creative industries, there's a tendency to over intellectualize. And it's, I think it's a sort of a comfort blanket mm -hmm. that, you know, you need to do that to look clever. When actually, I think as you get older, as I've got older, I've become less and less concerned and, and just more and more able to, I run towards simplicity now rather than away from it. If I ever did. I, I, I did a post recently actually about whether you can segment people into, into two groups of either simply phobes, people who are scared of simplicity and simplifile people who love it. And I'm definitely mm. a simplifile. And I think now, particularly now in my fifties, I'm, I'm getting more radical on the, on the I, I will push the simplicity as far as it can go. I mean, as Einstein said, you don't, you shouldn't simplify things more than they need to be simplified, but I'll push it to, to the right you know, as far as it should go. So yeah, I think that's a trait of my work is it's, it's, it's taken to the simplest level and, mm -hmm. and, I, and I have no fear about doing that. And it's not easy. No, I don't think it is. I think it, it, it's, it's quite uncommon. Mm -hmm. I suppose you have to understand the culture of the client and their business to be able to simplify, to get to a point where you feel confident that it's the answer they need. My assumption is that you have to get the culture first before you can get to the simple solution. Because otherwise you might, you might be missing the mark. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. I think, I think the, the, the reading and getting culture it is related to what I said earlier about being good at service. You know, so I've worked in pubs and restaurants and different people at different times of day, you know, lunchtime, evening, there'll be groups of people in that restaurant who are there for different reasons. And they are looking for different things from, from the restaurant. You know, it might just be a casual everyday meal for someone. It could be a really special occasion for somebody else. And, and if you are going to provide good service, you need to 
quickly establish who these people are and what kind of experience they want from the restaurant at that particular time, which means you need to care about giving them the experience they want and you need to have a degree of empathy, you know, put mm-hmm. yourself in their shoes and imagine what it's like to be them and what they want. And I think I carry that over now into the work. You have to care and you need, and you need to be alive to all the signals that this culture is sending out to you. I think a lot of people, a lot of smart people in this business are, they're set more to broadcast than they are to receive. And I will go on broadcast at the very end when, when I've done the work and I've done the thinking and I've got my recommendations, but I'll be on receive for mm-hmm. as long as possible in terms of, like I say, all the signals that people and cultures are throwing out, which are a gift. You mentioned early on, when you said you're being brought up, you were always interested in how things work. Do you think that's there's a line between that curiosity and that engineering skill that you had, to, the, the skills that led you to do engineering, that the, really this is all tied up together, that you've basically solved problems, you get to the solution? Yes, I do. Uh, but I think I, I only realized it very late on in my career, probably when I was in my mid-late 40s, actually. And I'd been, so, you know, I, as you said earlier, I started off in account management and then I was in general management, so you know, running the agency. Yeah. It wasn't until I was 40 that I actually went into account planning or strategy. Mm-hmm. So I went from being managing director of the Leith Agency to strategy or planning director of a, of a brand new digital agency called Blonde. Mm-hmm. So one of my last meaningful acts as MD of Leith was to recruit the guy who was going to be MD of Blonde, which was going mm-hmm. to be Leith's sister digital agency. And then as part of that process, I ended up jumping ship from Leith into Blonde. So I'd, I'd actually recruited my new boss, which is quite unusual. But no, so I, I became a strategy person in a digital agency aged 40 and did that job for a while. But it was only, it was only later on that it kind of dawned on me what my style was. And it was exactly what you've just described. It was that enemy that I want to know how things work. I want to mm-hmm. understand things from first principles. I don't want to take anything for granted. Mm-hmm. And it was applying those traits to communication strategy for clients and encouraging those traits in the team as well. So yes, you're absolutely right. You you realized it a lot quicker than I did. That's really interesting. So, so, so you said there, but encouraging those traits in others, you've worked with so many different industry leaders and clients and based on what you value, what you've just described and what you value in others, what would your advice be to anyone that's forming a business today? Whether it be in communications or anything, what are the what are the the universal important characteristics you think people should be aware of? To the extent that I am qualified to answer the mm-hmm. question, I don't particularly consider myself as an entrepreneur, certainly not compared to people who I know who, who definitely are entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. I think, though, from what I've learned, particularly over the last three years working for myself, is... It would be how do you create a business and how do you run that business in a way where 
you can be faithful and authentic to who you are and not find yourself in a position where you're having to make a choice between commercial reality and your personal integrity and being faithful to your values. So I've been fortunate I haven't ever been put in that position. And I think the main way to avoid it is is to have is to have a good runway, is to have a good cash runway so that you always have a, a financial safety net and that puts you in a position where you can say no to stuff. Mm. I think that's really important. If you can get, if you can get yourself in a position where you can say no to stuff that feels wrong, that's a good place to be in in any kind of business. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, particularly so in an agency world. Uh, yeah, I've I've worked in agencies that have said yes to the wrong things mm-hmm. for commercial reasons, and it so never give, works out. It never it never ends well. Never ends well. So, given that you you've described your trajectory from school to agency world, from management, client service, general management, to planning and strategy, to what you're doing now as an independent consultant stroke entrepreneur. What are you working to achieve now before you leave this, Shakespeare said, this mortal coil? So what do I want to achieve before I shuffle off this mortal coil? Again, this is something I had to think about it because it's not something I spend a lot of time thinking about mm-hmm. normally. I don't tend to think about this for myself. I'm a widower and I've got four daughters. So when my wife died, I I kind of made a promise to myself that my purpose on this earth, as long as I'm on it, is in my main purpose on this earth is to be there for them as and mm-hmm. when required and to drop everything if if need arises for them. So really, if I had to choose one thing to achieve, you know, to achieve between now and my dying day, it would be to do that, which is when mm-hmm. they need somebody that I, I will be there and do whatever I can to help. And everything else really pales into insignificance, really. For myself, I think really have some grandiose, glorious, mm-hmm. higher purpose Mm-hmm. I'd be quite happy if life is a sort of continuous series of creative acts, mm-hmm. various descriptions. I'm at my most happy when I'm creating, whether that talking about creating grand works of art, but you know, strategy mm-hmm. is an art, yeah. is a creative act. So mm-hmm. working with clients is a creative act. You know, blog, a blog post is a creative act. Cooking is a creative act. So if life continues to be a series of creative acts of various shapes and sizes, I'd be quite happy. I'd be deliriously happy if I write a novel one day. That's such a cliche for an advertising uh, person. I'd be waiting for the idea to come to me and I'm then sure. I'll do it. So that'd be nice. And then we haven't talked about this yet, but through some of the work I do, documentary making around democracy, if that were to play a small part in bringing about wholesale systemic change that address the issues of inequality and climate breakdown, then that would be good. So if you, if you want something grand, that that's probably where it is. I'm going to talk about that, but I want to weave together a couple of things. One, when you talk about creative, creative acts, they can be large and they can be small and everyone, you know, 
is creative to some degree. When you're solving your problems, your creative acts are <laughs> in a large degree solving problems for clients and coming up with these solutions for them. There's always a period when you're working on a brief from a client. There's that, that liminal space where you haven't got the solution, where you haven't driven so deep into the problem that you've got to the simple solution. How do you deal with those periods of uncertainty? Faith mm-hmm. that it will come. If you, if you, yeah, it's never not come. I think it's faith in your experience. It's faith, belief that you're going to ask the right questions of the right people and listen well to the answers. And a lot of this, I think, it's about making sure you've got the right inputs, knowing the questions to ask, knowing the stones to look under, knowing the things to sort of prod at. And then I kind of imagine this big hopper in the top of my head and you pour all this stuff in. And then this is why it's an act of faith. You just let it percolate. And sometimes I write it down on a whiteboard or an A3 layout pad, a very analog, and just let it stew. And then, you know, again, it's a cliche, but walking the dogs or whatever, it will just come. It'll be, oh God, yeah, that's what this is all about. It's, It's getting the right quality of input and then just letting your subconscious do the work of making the connections Sometimes you, you have to just apply yourself and, you know, you know, gonna, I'm going to force this. But what tends to happen is, I'll, you know, you'll have a concerted two hours of, of actually consciously trying to work something out and writing stuff down and having thoughts and ideas and using a thesaurus to come up with different words for the same thing and blah, blah, blah. But most of the time, it won't happen then. It won't happen unless you do that conscious work. But having done the conscious work, you walk away let your subconscious do its thing. And then 10 times out of 10, when you're not trying to make it happen, it will just this phrase or something will come into your head or a, or a framework or a pattern. And then just write it down as quickly as possible before you forget it. It's funny. It, it, it sounds really thin and flaky if I were trying to sell that as a process to a client, but it's the truth. Yeah. Are you concerned about? the impact that generative AI, things like chat GPT, is going to have on people's ability to do what you've just described? Yes, but I have no idea if that is a well-informed, justifiable mm. concern or not. I see lots of people talking about it. I see lots of people playing with the technology. I haven't had a play myself. I've seen enough of what other people have done to kind mm-hmm. of get what it's about i have no idea what the long-term or even medium-term impact is going to be but it will be significant i think i recently read understanding media by marshall McLuhan. it's the book it's written in Mm -hmm. 1964 it's the book in which he coins the phrase the medium is the message yeah in fact the first chapter is called the medium is a message and it's an often sometimes willfully misunderstood concept. But what what he says is that when he says the medium is the message, the, the message of any medium is its impact on society. So I think if he'd been alive today and he were talking about the medium is the message as applies 
to social media, the message of social media is not the content that is published and it's not the conversations that take place. The message we now know, I think, of social media is a more divided society. It's industrial scale surveillance and it's a negative impact on mental health. Yeah. So it, it, it's the societal effect of a medium or a technology. And then one of the other things that he says in that book is that media technologies are put out before they are thought out. Hmm. Yeah. And that's what really worries me with the AI is it's being tested in the wild before it's been properly thought out. Now I hope there are some really well-intentioned, smart people who are thinking it out to the extent that you can, but it doesn't feel like it. So who knows what the message of the AI medium is going to turn out to be, but it will be significant. I suspect that's why Elon Musk is trying to hire the head of DeepMind and to form a team because he now believes, and he said for a long time that he believes it to be one of the existential threats to humanity. And I think he's now intending to add to his workload and do something about it. Even though he was an early investor in whatever you think about Musk, I mean, his intentions here, I think, are grounded in some sort of genuine concern. I hope so. I hope so. Uh-huh. I mean, yeah, I'm kind of ambivalent about him. You know, on the one hand, this idea that all progress comes from unreasonable people and he seems to fit the bill, hmm. but then he seems to take it too far. He seems to be acting like a sociopath at yeah. Twitter. But yeah, I, 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 it worries me. It worries me. I, I've seen some, you know, saw some stuff the other day about, you know, AI being used to detect for early detection of skin cancer, you know, able to do things that the human, human, humans can't do. That clearly is, is, is not just a benign use. It's a really helpful use of that kind of technology. So I guess it's, it's the context in which it's applied, the kind of problems that it's pointed towards and the degree of control that can be exercised over it and, and, and the intent and the motivation and the values of the people who are exercising that control. I mean, that's the other thing that worries me about again, from a, from a position of ignorance, subject matter ignorance, you know, I, I, I've read enough to know that, you know, you, bias and bigotry can be hardwired into the, into the code and the algorithms and the training regimes for these things. So that's quite a worry as well. So I've got lots of worry, lots of concern, mm. but not an awful lot of knowledge, which is mm. probably not a good place to be. Mm. Hearing you talk about your hopper in your head and the way the faith to just trust and the answers will come. Is it because it's generative, because it's relying on large learning models, all it's doing is just feeding from the past? I, I wonder how we'll get to a point where it will actually, maybe it will be general intelligence, where it, it will replicate what the human mind does. As you say, this A3 pad, you'll be writing and writing and writing, then a phrase will come to you. These solutions to problems, the, the serendipity, the 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 happen chance it just i just don't think you can engineer for that through the technology i hope not so my that concern ability. is what it will what it will do to people's ability their ability to solve problems the way that you solve problems i mean i guess if it appears that you can outsource that sort of thing to a machine it will make people less inclined to do it 
the problem then is if, if, as you say, you can't, a machine can't actually do that. It can't, it can't intuitively combine two ideas to make a third in a, mm-hmm. in an unpredictable, but useful way. You know, it's hard to imagine how a machine could have that kind of intuition, that kind of in creative intent. It doesn't mean it's impossible. So yeah, no, who knows where that's going to end up. I'm not, I think there's lots of people trying to talk as if they know, but they don't, they can't. Yeah. yeah. It's going to be an interesting journey. So I want to take a sort of left turn. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about your, your documentary because I think that it is what documentary making is fascinating. But, but first, first of all, I just want to ask you about something called a longing look. Huh. You seem to have a, aside from an encyclopedic knowledge of ads you used to watch with your, sister when you're a kid you seem to know a fair bit about lyrics and deconstructing lyrics and you've written a lot about lyrics on this blog i'd love for you to talk about that and particularly reflect on both jim steinman the great rock and roll writer of meatloaf of hell fame and also you also wrote something beautiful about you twos all i want is you all i want is you and the lyric harbor in the tempest Mm -hmm. um and then you also wrote something about Freddie Mercury. We'll come and talk about it. But I just looked, where did this come from? It was one of those serendipitous things again. When we started Blonde, we were very keen that it wasn't going to be a Scottish agency. It was based in Scotland. But we wanted to be to work out of Scotland rather than in Scotland. And a big part of that was building a profile in London for the agency. But also, I kind of took it upon myself to build a profile for me and, and the planning function within Blonde. So I made a point of getting down to London quite a lot and going to industry events and manufacturing opportunities to, to do talks and presentations. So there was a kind of mutual benefit there that helped me build my profile, but the agency benefited as well. Mm-hmm. And one of the events I used to go to was a thing called Google Firestarters. Oh, yeah, Neil Perkins. And- Neil Perkin, yeah, he created yeah. that for the planning community in London. Mm-hmm. So I gave a two, three talks. I met some brilliant people, really, really good people. One of the people I met there was a planner called James Keg. He was a planner in a, in media agencies. And what would happen is that there'd be a Google Firestarters event. And then there was a sort over, over the years, there was this sort of core group of people who would always go to the pub with Neil afterwards. I was just talking to James one evening about. You know, wanting something a bit more creative on, on the side. And it, it was like, wouldn't it be great to collaborate on something? And so we, we, we sort of, we created this thing, a longing look from purely from a desire to have a creative side project. And we discussed a number of ideas. I can't remember what they are, but the one that we both liked was this idea of writing love letters to lyrics because we both love music. Him probably more than me. He's a fanatic. He's a great writer as well. And so, yeah, we hatched this idea of mm. creating love letters to lyrics. And it's been a lot of fun. I, yeah, some of my best writing is on that blog. Put it in the show notes. I recommend people go and read it. It's, I've, I've um, yeah, spent quite a few hours reading some of these wonderful pieces. <laughs> you wrote on that, described Ferry Mercury as a 20th century bard. And you wrote about some of his lyrics from... I think you said, you know, jealousy is as Othello, somebody to love. 
his twelfth knight, Bohemian Rhapsody, his Hamlet. We are the champions as Henry V. We could spend probably an hour talking about why you wrote that. But can you just explain a bit about the power of the track and the universal appeal of We Are the Champions? Mm, yeah, it, I read it again because you mentioned it. I've forgotten what I did. I actually took, I took some stills of famous Shakespearean actors. So, you know, Kenneth Branagh playing Henry V and Marlo Brand, Marlon Brando, I think he's playing Mark Antony, mm-hmm. Ian McKellen in Macbeth. There was Laurence Olivier was one, and then Hugh Kwashi playing Othello. Uh-huh. And I took lyrics or stanzas from We Are the Champions and put them over those still frames of, of, of these famous Shakespearean actors. Mm-hmm. And it does not feel out of place. I think he, particularly when he wrote in the first person, as he does, does in that song, he, he, there's a Shakespearean quality to, to his lyrics. And I, I, I do think about this stuff a lot, you know, through storytelling for clients and writing about lyrics. And there's a really interesting book, which I pulled out, which is this one here. It's a translation of a, of a, of a Greek philosopher called Hermogenes. Okay. And he wrote on these oh. types of style. And I bookmarked it here. But he says that, the, that the, what, what all writers are looking for is writing that has force, which I think everyone would agree we are the champions has force. But there are six components of writing that has force, and there's some obvious ones. So clarity is one, character is one, and sincerity is one. But there are other characteristics of, of writing that has force, and there are things like grandeur and beauty. And, and grandeur is, 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 is made up of things like solemnity and vehemence and brilliance and fluorescence. And I think I doubt very much that Freddie Mercury had read Hermogenes on style, <laughs> but like Shakespeare, yes, me. like Shakespeare, naturally his writing has has that that attribute of force that is a combination of all those other things. You know, so there's a, there's a passage here. It says Hermogenes realized that a speech that is extremely clear runs the risk of appearing to be trite, commonplace, or obvious. In his discussion of grandeur, he therefore deals with the various ways in which an, or- an orator can keep the clear from appearing to the mundane. And that's what Freddie Mercury does. His language is really simple. It's not polysyllabic, but it has that grandeur and anything but mundane, and therefore it carries huge force. So yeah, I, I don't think it's remotely ridiculous to compare him with Shakespeare. And as I say, when you put those lyrics against those Shakespearean actors, it looks like the words could be coming out of their mouths. It would have been an interesting exercise to do the same for Jim Steinman. Jim Steinman definitely has force, but I, it comes from a place of, of melodrama and, 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 mm. and, un, and brazen over-the-topness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Have you ever been to Jim Steinman's website? I did after you, you wrote about it. I went there. I went. Oh my goodness! It is. It's a car crash. Yeah, it is a car crash aesthetically, but you know, modesty was not a problem that Jim Steinman had. So I've got it here open again in preparation for this. This is Jim Steinman talking about him and his songs. He says, "Most people don't like extremes. Extremes scare them. I start at extreme and go from there." So <laughs> he's like. I start at the very limits and then I go beyond them. And it's so true. 
is so over the top, so melodramatic, yeah. and just so good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On one of my cycles, I can't run at the moment, so I go these long cycles through Austin in the hills, and I put on Bat Out of Hell and Bad for Good, two of his mm-hmm. classics, and listen to Paradise by the Dashboard Light, and just remembering just the, the sheer brilliance of that bombast and over the topness, as you'd say. It's, it, yeah. it's genius. I mean, it's, that's a, yeah. that's a three-parter, isn't it? Paradise by Dashboard yeah. Light. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that album was made to be a a rock opera, which eventually it became, didn't it? Became a musical. It was it was just meant to be performed on stage because the storytelling is brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Talking of storytelling, you're part of All Hands On, an NGO yes. that aims to strengthen the resolve of political reformers and. In your words, so enthuse, educate, and empower ordinary people to become politically literate and politically active using documentary films about radical democracy. Now, you mentioned already that you, you, you want to write that book. You want to make, at some point, do something that's beyond just solving problems for clients. Can you talk a bit about All Hands On and why you're doing it? Yeah. So, we started All Hands On in 2017. And when I say we, that is me and a friend of mine from school days, from Gordonston days. I would say, I would say back, back then when we were sort of 16, 18, we were friendly rather than friends. So we were never actually, we wouldn't call ourselves friends at school. And then whatever it was, 40 odd years later, Patrick got back in touch with me and said, look, I'm, I want to do this thing. I see that you're, you know, good at marketing. I think this needs a marketing brain on it as well. He, he, his background was as a, as a journalist. So he'd worked mm-hmm. for Reuters and he covered the European Union in Brussels. He'd covered the city of London and he'd also worked in Indonesia as well. And what he had seen, he'd covered things like climate negotiations at the EU as a Reuters journalist. And he become bitterly disillusioned with the whole thing, how the systems and the institutions of commerce and finance and economics and politics and media are all meshed together in a way that is disastrous for equality and disastrous for climate. And he left Reuters through disillusionment, took redundancy, And he wrote a book called Fraudcast News. So Fraudcast News, and I think the subtitle was something like How Bad Journalism Supports Bogus Democracy. And the conclusion that he'd come to is that this, all this, all these institutions and systems are intertwined and intersectional, but fundamental to resolving these things is, is a, is a sort of reboot of what we all understand about democracy. So to me, to most people and to me included at the time, Democracy is, is voting for people once every four years, which is not what it was meant to be. In fact, for the ancient Greeks who came up with the idea of democracy, elections were in, inherently undemocratic. And yeah, the, the, so the, 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 the etymology of the word democracy is are the Greek words demos, which is citizens or the populace of a country and kratos which is power so democracy literally means power to the people and through elections we're basically outsourcing our agency and our power to elected 
representatives who actually don't represent the majority of us. So it doesn't work as from first principles, it doesn't work as a democratic system at all. So that's kind of intellectually interesting. But at the time, and most of my life, I've been quite politically disengaged and politically shallow. I think growing up in the, in the UK, for most of my life, it kind of alternated between, in the UK, between conservative and, and labor governments. And it didn't really seem to make a huge difference to things who was in power. I mean, obviously they had different ideologies, but it, it didn't make a huge, massive, fundamental difference who was in power. So I wasn't really that bothered about politics. However, 2014, there was the referendum about Scottish independence, mm-hmm. which would have made a huge difference. And then in 2016, we had the the Brexit referendum, whether we should stay in or leave the European Union, which has made a huge difference. Mm-hmm. So in 2017, when Patrick got in touch, I'd been through these two referendum processes where it suddenly dawned on me that actually politics does make a difference and it is important. So I was sensitized to his approach and I was, I was wide open for working on, so- on something which might lead to something better. So mm. that's a very long way of saying that mm. he got me involved at the right time. And yeah, so he decided that having written this book, the next thing he wanted to do was make films, which would educate people to the fact that voting once every four years is not what democracy is meant to be. There's a better way of doing democracy that will gives us a better chance of solving some of the fundamental issues that the world faces. And in the process, we can better fulfill our role as citizens to be hands-on on political issues rather than hands-off and delegating them. So what? Wh- where are you with it? Well, the first thing, the first film we made was funded by the United Nations Democracy Fund, and it was a film about the Citizens' Assembly that was a precursor to a referendum in the Republic of Ireland around the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution, which basically was a, the Eighth Amendment basically banned abortion in Ireland. And it was a politically toxic subject for religious reasons, societal reasons, all sorts of reasons. Politicians did not want to go anywhere near this subject because it could only end up being polarizing and therefore a vote loser for any politician from any party. So the way that they addressed this issue was was bringing citizens back into the decision-making process through this thing called the Citizens' Assembly, where a hundred or so people are randomly selected chosen to be representative of the population of Ireland. And then over a series of weekends, they receive briefings on every aspect of the issue of abortion, be it religious, societal, legal, the health aspects, the feminist aspects, the con- every aspect of that subject matter, they were briefed on. From If there was a debate, if it was a polarized debate, they were briefed by both sides of that debate. And then there are a series of well-facilitated discussions. And obviously people start those discussions with really extreme views on the subject, probably not believing that they are, there's any way that they can alter their views. Lo and behold, when they're presented with facts and opinions from all sides, they have well-facilitated civil conversation, respectful conversations with people who might have differing views to them. 
yes, their views do evolve and they tend to converge somewhere in the middle and people are able to reach consensus. And that process reached a consensus that actually, do you know what, we should legalize abortion. And actually the, what was really good was that the, the, the assembly process was well publicized in Ireland. So it wasn't just the people in the assembly. It wasn't just important for them. The deliberations were publicized. So the voting public, when it came to the referendum, were aware that the process these people had been through, they were aware of the conclusion that they'd come to. And actually the final vote, I think it was something like 66, 33% mm-hmm. in favor of legalizing abortion was very similar to the position that had been arrived at in the Citizens Assembly. So that was, that was our first film, which shows that anyone from any walk of life, regardless of their education, their sort of socio-demographic background, everyone has an innate ability, an innate skill to tackle politics. And that's what politicians, elected politicians don't want us thinking like that. You know, they want to, they want people to think that being a politician is something that only certain people can do, but it's not true. We all can do it. And so that film was the first, our first exploration into documentary filmmaking. On the back of that, we were commissioned by Extinction Rebellion to make a couple of films for them. They had a series of demands when they first started occupying London. But one of them was, you know, they, they felt that the government, all governments were unwilling stroke incapable of making the policy decisions required to address the climate crisis. But their solution to that was, was actually that the, the decision making to be put back in the hands of, of citizens and, and that they were demanding that the government create some kind of citizens assembly process similar to the Irish abortion one to make sensible, effective policy decisions because the politicians themselves were never going to. So we made a film about them making these demands. Around the same time, we went to Athens in 2019 during the European Parliament election. So we went, we went back to the ancient birthplace, birthplace of democracy as it's meant to be exercised mm-hmm. by the people. And there was a circus of politics as usual in the 21st century going on, all these sort of electioneering. So you had democracy past, democracy present, but as an insight into what democracy future could look like, we, we, we went and filmed people who were using those, uh, those old democratic principles of ex- exercising power directly. So there was a cooperative cafe in Athens where they operate with no bosses and the workforce meet every Thursday to collectively make decisions about the running of the business. There was a community theater group, again, de- democratic decision-making, all not just any member of the theater group, but anyone can just walk in off the street into one of their sessions and take part in the discussions and, and help them make decisions about how they're going to run the theater group. And then <clears throat> we were also allowed to go into a into a squatted school, an, an abandoned school in a sort of, I think it's known as the, the sort of anarchist district of Athens. But the school had been, was being squatted by refugees and migrants from, you know, Yemen, Syria and all over. But again, they were running their community on, on radical democratic principles. Everyone's got an equal voice. 
all decisions made by consensus. And it was a beautiful place. I mean, what those people have been through to end up where they were, but just, just a really good consensual democratic governance mm-hmm. sort of structure they put in place. So, so that, that was a lovely film. That was a really lovely film. The democracy past, present and future all shot in Athens. And then the most recent film we've made, which was sort of shot during COVID pandemic somehow, was actually in Malawi. And they've been using a, a, a bigger scale, a series of citizen assemblies to address how local spending is dispersed and prioritized in Malawi. So they've got this thing called a, it's called the CDF, a constituency development fund. And what happens is, is money is divvied up and it's given to each MP in each constituency. And the MP makes decisions about how that money is spent in his or her area. And if you've got a good politician, they make good decisions and the money is spent on the right things. If you've got an incompetent politician, the money gets spent, but it gets spent on the wrong things. And if you've got a corrupt politician, the money gets pocketed and, you know, doesn't get spent on anything. So these citizens assemblies pulled together randomly selected people, all backgrounds, some people, you know, illiterate, couldn't read and write. But again, they were briefed on CDF, how it's meant to work, all the various issues, the conversations were properly facilitated. And all of them, as always happens, demonstrated this innate political ability. And they came up with some really, really good solutions for how CDF should be administered. And the politicians sat up and took notice. And what's been really good in Malawi is that now that these people have learned the system, they know how the system works for them. They know how the system works against them. They can't unlearn that. And they have formed an alliance with local radio station. They got these WhatsApp groups going on. They are disseminating what they've learned in their community to other neighboring communities so that the benefit of the process that they can, they've been through is now being, is now being exported into neighboring areas and it's sort of putting down roots. So that's been really, yeah, we, we, we finished that film not long ago. So that we're just in the process of seeding that out there and we're trying to get, trying to get some extra money to pay for community screenings in Malawi and potentially some other neighboring countries as well. But when you're talking, it reminds me of Rutger Bregman. Oh yeah, I, I know the one you mean. I've got it. It's on my bookshelf. I can't remember the name. Yeah. He was on the back of that book. He got invited to Davos, didn't he? And he caused a bit uh-huh. of a stir saying exactly, this is... Ex- exactly, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think there's people like that out there and also the Guardian journalist as well, Paul Mason, is it? Yeah. Paul Mason, yeah, is it? Yeah, Mason. yeah, yeah, yeah. Just interviewed Mariana Koval, who heads up Invest NYC, which is part of um, New York University's Stern School of Sustainable Business, and they are building programs, taking the seventeen SDGs and packaging them into six pillars, and then looking at building programs at a hyperlocal city level to affect change working in public-private partnerships. And one of the programs she's running is uh, on micromobility to look at how do you create more equitable economic opportunities for people in districts like the Bronx in New York, where they have people have to, working class people have to travel miles on public transport that takes them two hours to get to the, where they have to work. 
and it, it damages their lives and their families. So they're using micro mobility e-bikes programs to reduce their travel times to 15 minutes. Um, and it's a really interesting sort of example of how something, a piece of technology and reimagining the, all of the elements of the program can actually radically change people's lives and communities. One of the people she's putting me in touch with is a worker cooperative guy in the Bronx. So I might at some point when I interview him connect with you because I think what you're doing there in terms of your storytelling, what they are doing in the Bronx and also some other people in the south side of Chicago and in, in criminal justice reform, it's all about, they're, they're what I'm calling the, the difference makers, people on the ground making a difference, but they need to tell their stories. And I need to connect these people who are the difference makers with the storytellers to get their stories to be told more broadly, mm -hmm. to get a broader audience. Because it's only when people hear these stories, they go, hang on a second, why are we putting up with this, this nonsense of this political system we call democracy and so-called representatives to, to people to represent our needs and our uphold our rights when actually it isn't just and there is injustice, both from a in many many aspects, particularly when it comes down to the SDGs and how they're impacted on, on local communities. So that's why I'm doing what I'm doing is I'm trying to connect these people to so that stories can be told and people can wake up to the injustice that exists in society. Anyway, yeah, but that's a me. Absolutely, on. I think this kind of direct democratic governance of is happening all over the world in pockets. And they need to find a way of these pockets to coalesce. Definitely. And I was talking to someone the other day, they, they, they were saying this idea, I can't remember who said it, but you know, revolution occurs not when lots of people all think the same way, but when people realize that other people are thinking exactly the same as them. And it's only when you know that everyone else is thinking the same as you that that's when the revolution happens. So yeah, the storytelling and the, you know normalizing and, and making it known that this is happening everywhere is a vital piece of the jigsaw. Yeah. What you're doing with all hands on could have a huge impact to individuals, communities, countries. At the same time, you, you're part of an industry advising brands and businesses in their communication strategies and purpose is a word that's used willy-nilly by people in the industry without really doing anything particularly purposeful. Yet, at the same time, it's an industry where storytelling, we know stories can, can change minds and change lives. Do you think where the ad industry is today, or let's say the communications industry, can it be a force for good? Or do we need individuals like yourself to actually step outside their day jobs and do work, which is more focused on reimagining, as you say, what is democracy? I'm inclined to say no, it can't. And it's more the latter. I, I agree with you that in theory it could and should. I, th I think a huge job that needs to be done that all hands on is, is trying to do in its, in its sort of little way at the moment is that it's very easy to, to rail against the status quo, you know, and, and point at all the problems that the current system is causing. It's less easy for people to imagine a better alternative. 
that's definitely what we're trying to do is to produce films that help people imagine a better way of doing things. And I was talking to some people from the transition movement the other day who, you know, who basically their working assumption or their conclusion that they've drawn from all the available data is that capitalism has to end for us to have any chance. And the sooner that happens, the better. But again, one of the issues they've got is, okay, well, you're going to scrap capitalism. What are you going to replace it with? And how can I, as an individual, regardless of my circumstances, how can I imagine that that's going to be better than what I've got now? I think for someone like me, particularly, I've got a comfortable lifestyle. According to conventional wisdom, I've got a lot to lose from this transition that they're so keen on. So I really need some help to imagine something better. In theory, someone who is suffering from fuel poverty and is having to make decisions about whether to heat their home or to, to eat, someone who is having to use food banks, mm-hmm. someone living in poverty, it should be easier for them to imagine a better alternative because anything is better than the current reality. I don't think it works that way, though. I think the system is so all-powerful, it's almost impossible to imagine an alternative when you're within it. And that that sort of being a catalyst for people's imagination is, is such an important job that needs doing. And you'd think that the ad industry is perfectly placed to do that. I just don't think it is because I think it's so much a cog of the machine mm. of capitalism that it's, it's quite hard to smash the system from within. And it mm. definitely is. I mean, I struggle with this personally, that I'm still earning money within the system because I have to at the moment. I think it's structurally diff- difficult for the for the advertising industry to change the system from within. But I also think it's got this, it, for an industry that's based on creativity, it's also quite unimaginative in that, you know, there's that old thing that, if you're talking to an advertising agency, the answer is going to be an ad, regardless of what the question is. If you're talking to a digital agency, the the answer is going to be an app or a piece of technology or some content, regardless of what the question is. And I think I think the ad industry is trapped in that. Its solutions might be well intentioned, they're going to be superficial. The answer is some kind of commercial creativity. Now, what's the question? And it. I don't think commercial creativity is is the answer when it's the whole system that needs a rethink and a reboot. <laughs> like someone the other day, you know, again, it's a well-intentioned idea, but you know, the, the, they've created this app, I think, which creates recipes from, you know, in supermarkets in the UK, they have these what they call yellow label items. So they have gone beyond their best before date. So there's a best before date, which means beyond that date, its quality is going to suffer. And then there's a use by date after which it's unsafe to eat these things. So once they go beyond the best before date, but they haven't exceeded the use by date, they get these yellow labels on the, and the price is heavily discounted mm-hmm. and, and all the items are put together in the supermarket. So some agency has created an app that will allow you to look at what, whatever the items are with the yellow label on and it will create a recipe for you. So you can, you can eat a healthy, nutritious, interesting meal based solely on items that are on sale because they are, they've gone beyond their best before. And you think that's a nice idea, but in the context of a system that is destroying the climate and, and exacerbating inequality, it's really superficial. From what I've seen so far, most of that kind of work that's come out of the industry from within the industry is, is, is similarly 
superficial, I'm afraid. So I think, I think the latter option you described is that people within the, within the industry with the talents that are required need to separate themselves from the industry in order to, to do the kind of work that needs to be done. That, mm-hmm. That's my current observation. I'd be really happy to be proved wrong. No, I think that that's my gut feel as well. But yeah, there has to be some grand reimagining. And maybe there needs to be some form of digital town square where you recreate that forum that's in, as you described, in Athens, where people come together and debate and discuss and reimagine what the a future structure would be. Yeah, those platforms exist already. Yeah? What would mm-hmm. be a good one? There's one, I can't remember what it's called, but the, the government in Taiwan, there's this really spectacular person called Audrey Tang. You should look her up. She used to be an activist against the government, but the government brought her in to be, to run the whole digital side of, of government. And she's, yeah, made it much more democratic in the way that I would define democracy. But they, they use digital platforms to, to bring people in and, and discuss, debate, deliberate over issues so that as many people as possible are brought in to, to solve problems and it's working really well. So they, they use a digital platform for that. I can't remember what it's called. There's one I think called Liquid Democracy, which is a platform that has been, I never used it, but it, it, it's been created to allow for these deliberative processes online. And then there's a, political party in Europe called DM25, founded by Yanis Varoufakis, who was the foreign minister of Greece for a while. But all their policy decisions are made by their members. So it's a fully democratic decision-making process. And and they've got a platform they use for that. I can't remember what it's called. So those things already exist. The technology is there. Yeah, I'll, I'll check those out. You've worked with, just closing out on the ad industry, you've worked with some incredible ad industry luminaries. You mentioned John Denham being one person we've crossed paths with. Who's made the biggest impact on you? Again, I did some thinking around this because there were, there were some obvious answers given the place I've worked. But I think the one I will choose is a man called Robert Heath. He's an academic at Bath University. I don't know if he still is actually. But he wrote this book. The subject matter of the book Mm. was this idea of low involvement processing. And it's a Mm. book about how advertising works at a, at a neuroscientific level. So it's about how advertising works on the brain. And one of our clients, the standard, it was Standard Life, the big financial services company way back in the day. One of the clients there had read some of his papers and thought it'd be a good idea to bring him into the development process of a new campaign. And that was fascinating. I mean, particularly, you know, all the stuff we talked about, about how I like to look as an engineer, I like to understand how things work. So I have been a, an avid student of all the people in, in the industry who look at advertising and its effect from a psychological point of view and behavioral science point of view, but also from a neuroscience point of view, mm. how it's actually operating on the brain. And we directly used his theories as part of the brief to the creative team. And that was a fascinating process. So yeah, I think, I think for most of my career, most people in advertising kind of had a, an intuitive understanding of what would work. 
and quite often they were right, but they didn't have an understanding of from a from a first principles neuroscientific and psychological point of view why it was going to work. So he he opened my eyes to that idea that you you could study the effect of advertising from a more scientific basis in a way that could be applied to creativity, and we did so to to great effect with that campaign. So he's the one that I I chose in answer to your question. Um, I I can't. It wasn't called low involvement processing. I don't think it was called something. It had a it had a more catchy title. Yeah. It's about kind of going with the flow about of what a brand is at its essence but then it's about it's about repetition so the way i kind of i visualize it is it's like you know when people walk across a campus or something across grass and and they they basically create paths you know the, the, the architect might have put down a path where he or she thought it to go but it's the people who use the campus who decide where the paths grow and they and they etch them into the grass that the similar sort of thing happens in your brain, these sort of neural pathways and, and, and advertising can create those through, through repetition. And it's not, it's not how advertising is working at a conscious level. It's how it's working over time to embed these associations in the, in the same way that the people embed a path across a piece of grass by constantly walking on it. I'm not doing it justice, um, but it's quite a powerful theory. Okay. Put it in the notes, show notes. Do you have any key life lessons you pass on to anyone that's starting out? Starting out on life or starting out in advertising or... Is there anything for to reflect on? Anything? Yeah, I think well, we've talked a lot about serendipity. We've talked about yeah. adventure. I think I think a, a life well-lived is a voyage of discovery. So two of my five things would be under that sort of heading. So one is just mm. do things, yeah. do stuff. And you, know, you, ne- you never know what's going to happen as a result of doing things. To do things and go places. And maybe a third one, actually, under that heading of a voyage of discovery, do things, go places, and make a point of talking to people. Mm, yeah. One of the beauties of this job, particularly the strategy side, is I get paid to talk to people, you know, my clients' audiences, my clients' clients, my clients' customers. And everyone's got a story and you learn something from everybody such a privilege to actually get paid to do that. But I think, yeah, to do things, go places and talk to people. Those would be three of them and they're all related. I, I think a lesson in life. I think there's a, there's a thing I'm really taken with, which is the asymmetry of favors. And again, it creates serendipity, but particularly online and particularly some of the stuff that you do with the impossible network, you know, making connections to people. It doesn't cost you an awful lot in terms of time, but the value of those connections for the people involved can be huge. So there's a huge asymmetry there, low cost to you, huge benefit to them. And I think, again, a life well lived is about doing as many of those low cost favors as you can, because each of those favors could have huge value for somebody else at very low cost to you. And that that used to play out in the early days of social media. The technology actually facilitated that process. It was really easy mm-hmm. if someone had, 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 had written something interesting to share that. You know, it took seconds to share it. Yeah. Might have huge value to the person who'd written it. But that seems to have been lost of late, I think, in social media. But nonetheless, the principle still applies. That by and large, it costs very little to do a favor, but the benefit to the recipient can be huge. And if, if everyone was living according to that maxim, then 
we'd probably be doing better than we are. That's only four, isn't it? I don't know what the fifth one would be. 80%, that's a pass. So building on that low asymmetry favours and low cost to me, high value to someone else, I'm going to connect you with Dan McDougall. But is there anything else you would want? What serendipitous impact would you like this podcast interview to have? It's a difficult one with serendipity. I think the whole point of it is you can sort of live your life in a way where you create conditions where serendipity is more likely to happen. But I think the beauty of it is it, it, is it works in mysterious ways. So I'd quite like to keep serendipity mysterious rather than yeah. asking something specific of it. Mm-hmm. And that's not me ducking the question. I think, no, I think that's by the very nature of serendipity is it is those mysterious ways. So let's keep it mysterious. Okay. That sounds good to me. I'm not a natural writer like you, but I've been starting to do a newsletter called Random Collisions. And I, I started writing the other day about creating a surface area, increase the surface area for serendipity. Yes. Yeah. I'm a big fan of surface area. Yeah. It's a concept that comes up time and again in the work that I do. And it, and it can be different things, you know, whether it's relationships or whatever, but yeah, there's, there's, there's breadth and depth. But yeah, if you can do that for serendipity, I, I think that's a really good way of thinking about it. Yeah. Okay. Well, so I a- ask everyone now, are you happy for me to create some random collisions to other guests in the community as I start to connect these storytellers, difference makers and domain experts together? Well, what do you think? <laughs> I don't think you're going to say no. <laughs> Maybe. But It'd yeah, be slightly, slightly contradictory uh, the last yeah, two it, hours if I said no, wouldn't it? Yeah. A yes, no, please. No. Bugger, bugger off and let me go and get my beer. <laughs> no, resounding yes. Yeah, well, okay. Well, I will be doing that in due course. And the final question is, who do I interview next? Well, that's an interesting one, given the conversation we just had about the potential role of the advertising, the creative industry in in solving some of these bigger problems. The person who's sprung to mind, and I I haven't asked him Mm. permission, so I don't know how it works with this, but he he does do a lot of podcasts. It's a guy called John Alexander. Mm Mm-hmm. He used to work at Abermead Vickers, so he was on the inside of uh, the advertising system. And he made a conscious decision to, to leave because he didn't like the role that advertising was playing in society and capitalism. He's written a book, a really interesting book called Citizens. So you can see why I'm aware of him. We've had some conversations with him. And the premise of the book is that we tell ourselves stories about our role in society. And back in history, when monarchies were stronger than they are now, the the story that we were told and the story that we told ourselves about the role that we played, we played the role of subjects. Mm -hmm. And we acted out the story of subjects the the role we play now and the story we tell ourselves is that we are consumers and we are trapped in the consumer story and the consumer story is is a big part of the problem that the world problems plural that the world faces and it's a really powerful story and and John's idea is that the only thing that can replace a really powerful embedded story is a better more powerful story so the consumer story replaced the subject story, and he wants to replace the consumer story with a citizen story. 
full of beautiful stories. He went around all over the world researching the book, meeting people who are exploring the role of citizen. And he's been doing a world tour of the book and its principles. And so he'd be quite an interesting guy to talk to. Having been on the inside of the capitalist system and is now doing a lot of really good work. And he's done, he's done the job that we want to do with all hands on. He's, he's sort of, he's getting that idea out more and more into the mainstream. So he's doing a brilliant job. He'd be, he'd be quite an interesting guy to talk to. He would. Have you, um, you ever seen the movie My Dinner with Andre? No, I haven't. Oh my goodness. You have to watch it. You'd love it. Okay. It's, um, it's a 1980, 81, 82, I think. It's all set inside a restaurant in New York with Wallace Shawn and another guy, two, two guys coming together to have a conversation. And it's very existential, but there's a great piece in it where Wallace Shawn talking about New York and saying the great thing about New York is that it's an ultimate prison because the prisoners don't want to leave. Essentially, it's, you're, you're cap- captured. You don't even realize it's a prison. But it's got everything there designed to keep you imprisoned. And it's almost like when you were describing that with this John Alexander citizen, it, it makes me think of it that we're just caught up in the, you know, the story. Honestly, if you get a chance to watch it this weekend, watch my dinner with Andre. I think you'll really like it. Yeah. I, I mean, exactly that. I mean, I mean, John talked about, you know, coming out of lockdown, coming out of the pandemic, according to the government. The only thing we could do to help as consumers go out, go to the pub, go to restaurants, buy stuff. You know, your only role in this is to consume. And by consuming, you will help us solve the problem, which is 180 degrees wrong. Yeah. It's fascinating. I've got, I've got a guy, Jeremy Tarmamini, who runs Dual Citizen. And he, he's writing about the climate paradox of how while we've got all the people, the policies and the practices in place to create a more sustainable, a more sustainable world, all the evidence is counter that the, the inequities are increasing. The emissions are increasing and going, how can it be? So he's trying to work out what's going on. <laughs> so are all these people out there realizing that there's some fundamental issues? And when you then start to look at it from the, I suppose the SDGs and the global goals that we have, you know, that there are some fundamental changes that we have to, we have to make. And we can talk endlessly about the individual actions we can all take and not flying or doing whatever. I've got another guest, Joshua Spodick, that has gone off the grid in New York and his, he, he does his newsletter every week and he shows his, his impact versus average societies. I think, well, we, we could all come off of the grid, but the fundamental issue at the heart of it is as 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 John's saying it's we're consumers and that has to be the reimagining of what mm. is capitalism and that goes along with what Paul Mason wrote about in his in his last book but he talks about communism and but I think you can't do that because people just have you know you go well no one's going to buy into a communist no. manifesto but when you start to talk about collectivism or you start to talk about or Communities reimagined, working together in a much more distributed, flatter, ground-up way, where it's more based on cooperation. You can sort of start to see evidence of how communities could be reworked and redesigned. I mean, you can look somewhere like the Findhorn community, 
And the Fintorn community is mentioned, actually, funnily enough, in my dinner with Andre. Um, oh, really? So, yeah, yeah. So it's, I think we do need brilliant minds like yourself to come together and have these conversations. So I think it's a brilliant that you're doing all hands on. So let's continue the conversation, Phil. Yes, please. And see and, and broaden it and get more people talking about it. So yeah, absolutely. All power to you. All power well, to you. Well, excellent. I've enjoyed the conversation and so I. I will, it's going to be a monster to edit, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's your fault. You keep, you keep asking good questions. Yeah. Okay. Fab. Thank you so much. Okay, that's all for now, folks. Now, here's my ask of you. Please follow this podcast on Apple or Spotify or whatever player you use. Also, please subscribe to our new Random Collisions newsletter. We really are working to build a global community of action takers, action engines of people that really care about the problems that need solving. Thank you very much, and see you next time. Thank you.